So I need to um, preface this sermon with some personal history. In July of 2009, I left a stable pastoral job in a very large church that was comfortable, predictable, both happy and clappy, and very well paying. Eighteen months prior, I'd thought this was the ideal place for me, but I'd come to feel more and more dis-ease with the culture of the church and a growing and strong sense of the Lord leading me from there to plant a church that would eventually become Redeemer. And so that October I did, and we lived happily ever after. <laughs> Not at all. The next seven years were the most painful time of my life to this point. It was just a series of incredibly difficult interpersonal, structural, financial, theological, ecclesiological, all kinds of ways, challenges. Some of the personalities involved, including and maybe most specifically mine, made a situation that was ripe for insecurity, misunderstanding, and miscommunication. Lauren and I eventually put our Severna Park home on the market and planned to bank the money and rent so that we could be more immediately mobile if necessary. In July 2016, one of Redeemer's key leaders, in fact, our senior warden, wrote a letter to me and the rest of the vestry pronouncing Redeemer dead and suggesting that the best thing we could do was shut it down and that I find work elsewhere. I was 56 years old and I was exhausted in every way that I can imagine. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically. Candidly, it felt to me like death. I remember praying fervently, probably more fervently over an extended time than I ever had. The main thrust of my prayer was, Lord, get me out. It could be a new job. I mean, I've always had a fantasy about flying airliners or selling insurance. Actually, I'm totally kidding about the insurance. Is that anyone's fantasy? <laughs> it could be anything, really, as long as I could make a piece of money. It got so heavy at a couple of points that I thought, Lord, take me out. I mean, I'm fairly well insured. We've got equity in our home. Lauren can find somebody far more attractive and successful than me, as she reminds me regularly. <laughs> and at a particularly dark point I was reading, and I wish I could say it was the Bible, but it wasn't. It was a Vietnam War correspondent's memoir called The Things They Carried. And the Holy Spirit used one paragraph 
in that book to daze me. Tim O'Brien wrote, of all of us, I suppose, like to believe that in a moral emergency, we will behave like the heroes of our youth, bravely and forthrightly, without thought of personal loss or discredit. Certainly, that was my conviction back in the summer of 1968. The stakes ever became high enough, if the evil were ever evil enough, if the good were ever good enough, I would simply tap a secret reservoir of courage that had been accumulating inside me over the years. Courage, I seem to think, comes to us in finite quantities. And by being frugal and stashing it away and letting it earn interest, we steadily increase our moral capital in preparation for that day when the account must be drawn down. It was a comforting theory. It dispensed with all those little bothersome acts of daily courage. It offered hope and grace to the timid. It justified the past while amortizing the future. And those last three words of that paragraph, amortizing the future, hit me like a punch. And what God did with those words was to say, I'm God and you're not. Quit amortizing the future. Take courage. Don't avoid what's happening. Be honest and lean into this place of challenge and pain. Stop trying to avoid it. And also get a good counselor. <laughs> But it was in that moment that I began to grasp that the God that I had wanted wasn't the God I had. The God I wanted was a fantasy. I wanted, to, I wanted the God that was going to use me to plant this church and to become wildly successful. I wanted a God who would make it easy and comfortable and fun. I wanted a God who would do miraculous things regularly where I could preach inspired sermons and people's hearts and minds would miraculously change and their lives would be instantaneously transformed. But this was most definitely not the way that God was actually behaving. What I actually had was a God who was pushing me into the exact situations I wanted to avoid. A God who was persistently meddling in my interior life around issues I'd rather not confront, like my lack of faith and my deep insecurity and my almost debilitating fear of public failure. I wanted a fantasy, but what I found out was that's not necessarily the way God operates. What I had was a God who had no problem with sacrifice and hardship and suffering as tools to accomplish his purpose, and a God who called me and is calling us, I believe, into those same places to be willing to use sacrifice and suffering bleeding and pain and tears to accomplish his ambitions for transformation. As Jesus talks specifically about in the last paragraph of our gospel reading, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following him. 
And what I had was a God who called me. And I already read that paragraph. But I think for most of us, the heart of our struggle is often that we fundamentally misunderstand who God is. We fundamentally get it wrong. And the God who is, is not shocked by this one little bit. The God who is knows this about us. In fact, one of the ways of looking at his word to us, the Bible, is through that lens that he is understanding of that ignorance and is moving in strategic ways to engage us into overcoming our false assumptions with genuine revelation of who he actually is. It's the revealing of God's character that's essential to the Bible, not dates, not facts, not how did this happen and that happen, but who is God really? And one of the fundamental ways God does this consistently throughout Scripture is by asking questions. From the very beginning in the story of the garden all the way to the story of the new heavens and the new earth, there's an astounding number of questions that God asks human beings. And those questions are not there because God doesn't know the answers. He's God. If that means anything, it means he knows the answers. And so why does God, who is all-knowing and all-powerful, almighty, why would a God like that ask us questions? I believe it's to draw us, to draw something out of us. We don't know the answer. He's posing questions. He's probing. He's drawing us in for us to see things we need to see about him and about us. God asks so that we begin to see our false assumptions about his character and replace them with genuine experiential knowledge of who he really is. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this conversation in Mark chapter 8, if you want to turn to it, with his disciples in the Gospel of Mark. The narrative arc of the Gospel of Mark has bent steadily in one to one critical question, which is almost literally in the middle of the book. The question, who do you say that I who do you say that I am, is the fulcrum of Mark's gospel. The whole book kind of pivots on it. Of course, Jesus warms up his disciples by asking them a simpler question: Who do people say that I am? And it's very curious how his disciples answer him. Because throughout Mark and the other Gospels, one of the really interesting things is what people say about Jesus. And it's not all good. Spoiler alert, not everybody likes him. And he's got some nasty monikers. He's called demon-possessed, a glutton, a drunkard, a sinner, a friend of sinners, a false teacher, a troublemaker, just plain crazy. But none of those are the terms the disciples use to answer that question. Their answer seems more like a list of who they'd like Jesus to be. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. It's a, it's a curious list. It's curated. It's, it's cleaned up and shades toward the side of power. That Jesus is in the mold of a national deliverer, someone who's going to bring back the good old days, going to make Israel great again. Maybe they'll even have hats. But Jesus probes. 
He takes the question, who do people say that I am, sees their reaction, and focuses and intensifies it. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as usual, steps up. He answers the question correctly, you are the Messiah. In Matthew and Luke, he adds, the son of the living God. But Peter, even though he had the right answer, Messiah was wrong about what Messiah meant. His answer reveals that he wanted Jesus to be this great new leader who was going to usher in a new day of power and glory for Israel. By the way, that day is coming, but not yet. But in posing this question, I think Jesus is pushing, exposing Peter's false assumption of who Messiah is. And it's pretty clear in this conversation because almost immediately, Peter ends up rebuking Jesus for talking about what Messiah really means. Peter reprimands the one he's just called the son of the living God. And that takes some chutzpah. Peter is using the right word, but meaning something entirely different than Jesus. In communications, this is called a violent agreement. And Lauren and I have had many of those. One particular day, we were walking in Eastport. We walk every Saturday morning. And when we walk, we pray. And we were debating uh, that week about uh, putting a trailer hitch on our car so we could have a bike rack on on the back of our car. And what I was wanting was a receiver on that hitch that would sit up close to the car so there wouldn't be this big rusty thing hanging out underneath. Sorry if any of you have one of those. Um, underneath the car. And so I kept pointing out receivers to her and saying, that's the kind of hitch I want. That's not the kind of hitch I want. And she's going, I don't know what you're talking about. And I walk up to the thing and point right at it and say, that I, I, that's the kind of trailer hitch I want. Now, I was saying trailer hitch, and I was talking about the receiver on the car. Lauren, on the other hand, was talking about the ball that's on the back. That, to her, is a trailer hitch. So I will say this love of my life of 41 years, and the person who knows me better than any other human being, and a godly woman and I got into a very violent argument that fast. I mean, we literally went from praying, and I'm not gonna use the, some of the language that, that was in that argument, but it was ugly. Violent agreement. To Jesus, Messiah means something far different than what the disciples envisioned. That's why Jesus begins immediately to talk about suffering and opposition and death and resurrection. He talks about those things absolutely counter to this understanding of Messiah simply being a national hero. Jesus is going to be far bigger with a mission immeasurably grander than simply defeating an occupying Roman military force. I mean, that is child's play. Messiah is going after sin and suffering and death itself. Suffering and death were not part of God's original plan. Evil entered into the creation at a particular time in human history and caused a cataclysmic change, distorting and disfiguring and bending the original cre the creation. 
That's why suffering and death is so hateful and repulsive and tragic to us. When we recoil from suffering and death, our response is entirely appropriate. And God hates it even more than we do. But Christianity also teaches that amazingly, God himself in the person of Jesus Christ entered into the human condition and experienced suffering and death by execution on a Roman cross. And in so doing, God inverted these into means of achieving new life. As a result, God can use difficult and painful events in a redemptive way to deepen our character and to make us even more fully alive. A good analogy, I think, is a broken bone that is healed wrong. When that happens, the surgeon has to break the bone again, which is painful to get it to grow straight and strong. Spiritually speaking, we are full of broken bones. Our character is wounded by assault and by our own sinful patterns that have hardened. That's why it so often takes crises and difficulties to break our destructive life patterns so that we can grow straight and strong. Though evil is still evil, the wonder is that God is greater and can turn it into good. Of course, there's nothing automatic about a positive outcome. Suffering can deepen us, but it can also make us angry, bitter, and resentful. The key is whether we respond by turning to God in our suffering, as did the writer of the psalm we all said together today. Only then does it become possible to follow truly in the steps of Jesus, who son though he was, it says in Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience by what he suffered. He came not merely to help us in our sin and struggle, not to be a sort of chaplain to us. He stepped into death to destroy death, to unshackle us from our most fearsome foe, that's what he's come to do, and that's what Peter didn't yet grasp. When he begins to talk about his mission and he begins to talk about suffering, he's beginning to sketch out the depths to which he will go in order to accomplish the thing that he's about to do, and nothing will stand against his goal of achieving it. Because the reality is that salvation requires suffering. Without, remission, or without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, and death must proceed resurrection and so jesus is the messiah who uses death itself for his purpose of redeeming the world and setting us free from our imprisonment to suffering and death i mean you and i have situations and circumstances in our lives that can feel not just a little problematic not just in need of a little self-help or adjustment there are areas of our lives that feel like death some of us are in marriages that are ongoing and difficult, that forever circle around the same tired issues that just seem insurmountable. Some of us are in work that's not only joy-sucking, but out-and-out out toilsome or exploited. Others of us have health issues that have taken us to, shaken us to the core, that are causing us to think that, oh, that thing that I thought was very far off in the future is a lot closer than I thought. We watch the news and see our own country and we're overwhelmed by the constant onslaught of hatred and hopelessness and it feels like the death of something dear. Do I even need to mention COVID? 
I mean, it is just unrelenting. And on a very personal level, when on the 1st of July this year, the very first day of Lauren's and my very first sabbatical, a microburst hit our property during a violent thunderstorm and the uppermost limbs of a huge tulip poplar tree sheared flew 50 or so feet and did a six-figure remodeling job on our new house. And all of our carefully laid plans, all of our purposes in that moment were thwarted. And in that moment, I will confess, it felt like death. It doesn't matter where we are spiritually. We see these things. We, we feel these things. We come close to these things and we cry out for deliverance. And we conceive of a God whose job should be to just extract us from the situations. And sometimes, thanks be to God, he does that. But more often than not, the normative way that God applies his salvation is by delivering us through and not from the things that we fear and hate. And it's in those moments, in those places, with those issues, that Jesus' question takes on immense importance in our life. Who do you say that I am? The God we think we want is not the God that we have. But the good news is he's so much better. He's so much more powerful, so much more faithful. His ambition is so much greater than our small ambitions and desires. We want comfort. He desires transformation. In some ways, God is the ultimate Russian novelist. He's way more into character development than plot. God is committed to our character development almost above all things. He wants his character embedded in us in such a way that we come fully alive. So the things in our lives that feel like death are not just things we get through, but by his faithful presence with us, going through these things can become transformational experiences of resurrection and new life. That his being with us in those things that feel like death become the fulcrum of our own transformation into being the people he longs for us to be. You know, one of the most curious things about this passage is that Jesus tells his disciples, all right, now that I've told you about all this stuff, don't tell anyone. Why does he tell his disciples, don't tell anyone? I think it might be in part, well, John, of course, would say because his time had not yet come. But I think it might also be in part because they haven't seen it yet. They haven't seen the cross and the tragedy and the pain and the horror. They haven't seen his body laid in a grave. They haven't felt the grief and they haven't witnessed resurrection. And until they do, they are not ready. If they speak before resurrection, it'll be wrong. The reason I believe this is so important is that we must know resurrection in order to truly talk about its power. But the reality is death always precedes resurrection. The hardest seven years of my life, totally worth it. Because having stuck with it, 
through the faithfulness of God, I have seen things come to life. I have experienced the slow reveal of God's resurrection power. We are on the edge, I believe, of a new adventure. I'm excited about Redeemer's future, and I think a few others are too. Not because I've done anything, but because Jesus is present here with us. He's transforming something that was pronounced dead into something that's alive and vibrant and moving toward mission. By the way, I really want you to join with me in prayer about this. We have outgrown this space. It's kind of convenient that we can sit in the parking lot because if we're all together again, we're never going to fit in here. We need a new place. So, Anna, hi Anna, wave your hand. She has some prayer magnets, just magnets for the front of your refrigerator that four to five weekdays walk you through praying about some of these things with us. You know what? God is in the business of raising dead things to life. That's his ambition, his greatest joy, to step into the places of death and to sow seeds of life, not just at Redeemer, but in you. That's his ambition for you, for me, to make us whole and alive and complete. The God we think we want is not the God we've got. But the good news is, He is so much better. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.